Miss Trunchbull had now reached the victim and stood towering over her. I want those filthy pigtails off before you come back to school tomorrow, she barked. Chop them off and throw them in the dustbin, you understand? Amanda, paralyzed with fright, managed to stutter. My mummy likes them. She blades them for me every morning. Your mummy's a twit. <laughs> Pure evil. Pure evil. You are listening to Wheel of Genre, the podcast that little boys and girls live in fear of lest they be picked up by their pigtails and launched into a nearby field. I'm Zach. I'm- this time we read Matilda by Roald Dahl. Wow. Masterpiece. Incredible book. Really good. Really good. This is our second Roald Dahl book now. We read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a few weeks ago, and this is the third book, fourth book in our children's literature run. Peter Pan, we've read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we've read Little Prince, and now Mm -hmm. Matilda. Yeah. And don't forget our previous run of one, our run of one, (laughs) Pinocchio. (laughs) Treasure Island a little bit too. Yeah. And Call of the Wild. We've got a few children's books. For sure. We didn't count them as those, though. I think we counted both of those as adventure books. I do think that there is a big overlap between most adventure books. I mean, well, maybe I should say I think a lot of kids love adventure books. So it's hard to Mm. hard to really draw the line sometimes. But this one, I think, firmly stands on the side of this is a book. This is a book for kids. Book for kids. And last time when we read Roald Dahl, you said, I think Roald Dahl hates kids. Found that very interesting. When we read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it seems to be a critique of kids and their behaviors, or maybe the relationship between kids and their parents, if they're spoiled by their parents, or if they have their bad traits of their parents. However, this time the reader is unified with the children criticizing only adults. I don't think any kid does anything bad in this entire book. It's only the adults. So this time, I don't think we can say Roald Dahl is judging children. He's judging the adult world, and individual adults. There are a few annoying kids in here. I think that, or at least Roald Dahl paints them as annoying, like Matilda's brother, who is a kind of Mike TV type character, yeah. you know, loves sitting down in front of the television. It's kind of an understudy to his father, used car salesman business. Crookery. It's Crookery. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? Matilda's dad receives stolen cars. He's a fills- job. Yep, fills the engine with sawdust yep. and then takes a drill, hooks it up <laughs> to the spit to the odometer, not the speedometer, and yeah. sends it in reverse. Plot point that I believe is taken up by Ferris Bueller's day off, if my memory serves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> However, even when that kid is bad, he is redeemed at the end. He is the understudy of the crook adult, of the bad adult. However, when Matilda's family readily abandons her when she asks, Can I live? With Mrs. Honey, we'll talk more about that soon. The only person that looks back at Matilda is her brother, and he waves. The rest just keep going. So he mm. kind of, he has a heart, whereas the parents do not. Well, I think in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, as you alluded to, all the children are really products of their parents. In this one, I think the the kids are good despite their parents. Yeah. So, he, he, you know, you you have what you just said about the little brother who's, you know, not perfect, but is certainly redeemable. Matilda is kind of the polar opposite of that. She's she has horrible, horrible parents, parents who catch her reading and rip up the library book 
and are just so mean to her. But Matilda is intelligent and sweet, though I I do think Matilda is not 100% perfect. We can get to that later. Matilda is a kind of redemption of the parents here. Likewise, as we learn in the shocking reveal, Star Wars style reveal that Trunchbull is the aunt of Miss Honey. What we have there is a kind of, I mean, it's it's difficult because Trunchbull isn't really a parent, but she's a parental figure. So, mm. you know, you have the wicked Miss Trunchbull who, who's not direct progeny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but who's a little further down the family line, you get sweet Jenny Honey. They're related by marriage, and she's very much this evil stepmother of fairy tales. We don't know that until the end. Like you said, when we get the Star Wars reveal, she's just this evil character. She's the only antagonist. And the reveal is very shocking. I definitely did not see that coming. But it is that kind of setup, if you look at it retroactively, of the evil stepmother comes in, ruins the relationship with the father, kills the father, makes the girl's life hell. Yeah. Steals the house. Steals the (laughs) (laughs) house. Yeah. (laughs) Falsifies a deed, steals the house. Yep. The trunch bowl. The trunch bowl. I like what you said a lot about parents and children, especially in this book where children are good despite their parents. The opening of the book is quite good, where Roald Dahl is, or well, the speaker, the narrator, is making fun of parents that think their children are great to the point of saying, oh, when they tell you that their children are great or geniuses, it just makes me want to throw up. I need to find a basin and throw up. But then when he talks about her parents, he says that they loved the brother, but they considered Matilda a scab. Yeah. It's something you have to put up with when, until it comes time to flick it away. So anytime the parents look at one of Matilda's actions, like you mentioned the book already, they see any action that she does that she likes as negative, as bad, and they have to punish her for it. Whereas I feel like the reader is supposed to identify with Matilda and say, oh, she's reading books. I know I should read books too. I identify with her there. Her parents are wrong. Oh, Matilda is really smart. Even though she's humble, she can still help her friends and figure these hard problems out. I like that. I don't like the teacher that says she's an idiot for doing that. So it's very much different. Yeah. From Charlie. And there's, I love the unfairness of the teacher. Like what they're being tested on is multiplication tables. So Miss Trunchbull asks them to do the multiplication tables backwards, which if you think about it is, you know, a mathematical impossibility. Like to to say do multiplication backwards, it's like, well, starting where? You know, <laughs> we have an infinity of numbers here. <laughs> I think I think she means because you do your tables of three. So if you do three times three, three times four, three times five, now she wants them to do five times three, five times uh, five times three, four times three, that kind of thing. Maybe. That- oh, okay, but that that still reaches the same numbers. I thought it was like counting down. So fifteen times three, fourteen times three, <laughs> no, but it's like st- starting where? <laughs> Yeah, because I, I feel like most kids memorize their multiplication tables as a kind of like, you know, the same way you memorize like a limerick or a rhyme, you know, it's kind of like a verbal thing rather than actually crunching the numbers in that moment. Three, six, mm. nine, 12, 15, 18, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to step back a little bit to the idea that Roald Dahl hates children because okay. this book possibly convinced me otherwise, in, you know, compared to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and how kids are depicted there but at the very end of this book we get a little author bio of Roald Dahl 
and I'm I'm just going to read it. Roald Dahl remembered what it was like to live in a child's world and kept this in mind when he wrote Matilda. He once said that in order to see life from a child's point of view, you had to get down on your hands and knees and look up at the adults towering over you, telling you what to do. Matilda's triumph over the nasty adults in her life is based off this theory. Maybe Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I feel like the perspective is a little bit more distanced. You know, we're we're evaluating five kids and weighing them all equally on the scale, and they could all potentially go up or down. But in the end, Charlie is the one who really is, well, is the one who survives. Matilda, we're explicitly allied, we're explicitly identified with being a child. And it feels to me like he's he's really wants to give you a different perspective where it's not the kids that are bad. It's this unfair world of adults and institutions, and they're asking you to do all this stuff. And it's just so unfair. I think Roald Dahl's theory about how children should be cared for and what school should be like is does come from his childhood. When he was in, I think, Catholic school, he was Lutheran, I believe, but he went to a Catholic school or some sort of, pri- some sort of private school and was regularly caned. Or at least yeah. once so viciously that he forever became a big advocate against corporal punishment. And he said that he just couldn't believe that the world could exist like that, where teachers can hit the students, where parents can hit their children, and even where upperclassmen and teachers are encouraged to hit the children. Yeah. he's th- So he always uh, spoke out against that. Yeah, and he kind of parodies that here right mm. he he gives a world where trunchbull is king of the castle truly and wickedly king of the castle to the point of taking a little girl by the pigtails spinning her around helicopter style and launching her across the field there's another one where she accuses a boy of stealing a slice of cake so she makes him eat an extra large cake in front of an entire crowd of kids in order to humiliate him. And a funny thing that happens is a, a, a kid says, Oh yeah, we'll tell our parents, you know, this isn't right. And, and they just say, who would believe us? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these, these punishments are so outlandish that who would believe us? And you get the sense that that's how world doll feels about, you know, school punishments and, and the things that schoolmasters did to the kids. Yeah. Just vicious things. I love, though, that there is a positive turn to it because the kids unite against her and they call it a war. So when they meet the upperclassman, Hortensia, Hortensia tells them that, yes, it is like a war and maybe we'll let you in on the war. So they turn it into however they can, no matter what the risk is, they will try and prank Trunchbull. And so they they work together and they do different things. They try and stick glue on her chair. They try and mess with her hair. They try and do anything. But... If she catches them, she puts them in the chokey. So that little positive war becomes a next level of terror. The chokey is, <laughs> I've got a description here. The chokey is, quote, a very tall, narrow cupboard. The floor is only 10 inches square, so you can't sit down or squat. You have to stand. And three of the walls are made of cement with bits of broken glass sticking out all over. So you can't lean against them. You have to stand more or less at attention all the time when you get locked up in there. Then the front door has nails that she pounded into it. So you cannot lean on anything. And Hortensia has been in there, I think, five times and two of those times for the whole day, the whole school day, eight hours. Yeah, I love how it's basically a medieval torture device. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> Iron Maiden. Yeah. I so I I've seen Matilda the movie. I know that it was recently mm-hmm. remade, but I saw the original one back when I was young. So the movie came out in 96, so I would have been 5 6 years old when it came out. So mm-hmm. I don't remember much from the movie, but I remember that scene of kids getting slammed in there with the nails. Oh. And it was funny like reading this description kind of brought those back. What I didn't remember was that it was called the Chokey. <laughs> and <laughs> the, chokey. the yeah, so I I think we talked before when talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory how Roald Dahl loves language, he loves playing with language, he loves giving things really weird names. Like, you know, before in the other book, he would do these puns like, you know, there's whipping whipped cream. So, you know, they'd have whips and they were actually like whoosh, whoosh, whipping the cream in order to to turn it, you know, into what it would eventually be sold as. Here, it doesn't feel like he's creating scenes out of these playful things, but it does feel like his names that he gives things are so spot on, like they're really evocative. What's the torture device device called? The Chokey. <laughs> what is the evil, wicked headmaster called? The Trunchbull. And it's not just Miss Trunchbull. He refers to her as the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the name of the school is called Crunchum Hall. And you can yeah. kind of imagine these kids going in and just getting just getting crunched. And you know, you notice that it's never a word that explicitly describes what the thing is like no one gets choked in the chokey but it's always like this this word that's just to the left of it that's like that's emotionally evocative of a good or a bad thing jenny mm-hmm. honey is a very sweet name mm-hmm. just sounds good to say jenny honey and she's also a very sweet character i like chopper the parrot i don't really know if it's suitable to a parrot but i don't know that name <laughs> the i think the name of her parents is good too. And so her last name, you know, her name is Matilda Wormwood. I don't think we're talking about absinthe. I think we're just talking about wormy wood. You know, he's yeah. a guy who uses sawdust too, sawdust to put in the engines. It's just kind of worthless, worthless people. And I loved that scene with Mrs. Wormwood and Jenny Honey. Do, do you remember that one? <laughs> Miss Honey comes in and she wants to tell Matilda's parents that what they have is a genius under their, their roof. And Matilda's mom basically says something along the lines of like, oh, you know, you should be more like me. You're, you'll never get a husband the way you're acting. Yeah. And clearly way- you, cho- you chose books and I chose yeah. looks. <laughs> you chose books. I chose looks. Such yeah. a mean girl statement. But of course, Roald Dahl gives us a visual irony in it in that he portrays her as we'll just say not very attractive you know the 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 irony of this unattractive person being like i chose looks and married for money and of course we know as the reader that mr wormwood doesn't count as money he's a crook yeah it's it's funny it's clever it's good yeah especially when miss honey the the when matilda writes her a poem poem calling her the most lovely lady of all so we know that miss honey is good looking and that miss Wormwood is not. So her, you you chose books and I chose looks is not accurate. Yeah. Oh, so if there's one thing that Mm. I must have internalized as a child about this Mm. book, it's making up limericks on the spot. Oh, yeah. I I had no memory of them doing that. But 
you might not know this about me, but I love limericks. <laughs> Do you have a limerick for us? Right now, off the dome? Yeah. There once was a pod... <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> there once was a host named Bob. Oh, okay. He liked to eat corn on the cob. He soaked it in butter so much that he stuttered. That gluttonous host named Bob. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so the kids love making limericks and, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Roald Dahl didn't need to include a limerick scene in this book, but to me, mm. it felt like the kind of joyfulness of the Oompa Loompas, who you described mm-hmm. as a kind of Greek choir who are commenting Mm -hmm. on everything that happens in the chocolate factory as it goes on the limericks don't necessarily comment on what's going on in the story but they do add a nice level of playfulness and just characterization we've seen that kind of extra style of text occurring in kids books a few times now and i think we saw it when we read kim by rudyard kipling there was some other texts going on so i think it's kind of a mainstay and yeah this it is fun to see I really like the thing that really stuck with me. You mentioned, you know, seeing the Chokey and that suddenly brought back memories to when you saw the movie. I also did not read the book. I was a terrible kid and just didn't read any books. But anyway, I saw the movie and remember parts of the movie very vividly. And one part is when Matilda is getting all of the math questions right. I thought that was just incredible. I always thought, oh, my God, I want to be able to do that. That was amazing. That and then when she starts moving things and they start flying around her head. I thought that was incredible. Yeah. And I think, you know, even though she is a kind of supernatural character, she has, she can, she's telekinetic, so she can move things with her mind. Her ability to not give up, even in this adversity of being raised by people who are awful, she doesn't take them as an example. And I think it's interesting for Roald Dahl to be saying, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you don't have to be like your stupid parents, you know, to all of those kids, to my TV. You don't have to be addicted to television. You don't have to grow up like a crook, but you can be like my characters. I think yeah. that's kind of a radical thing going, well, not radical, but lots of characters are examples. And when we read these books, we think oh, I should live by that example. But it's interesting here to show leaders in your life, your parents, your teachers, the principal who are crap. And then as an author to say, here's a character that you can side with and who is on your side and you can be like. It's kind of like Peter Pan pied pipering people to live in a certain way. Roald Dahl as the author is doing the same thing. If you like my character, maybe you should be more like my character. You should turn off the TV and read these books. And read every book in the library. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. I I thought that was a... I thought that was fantastic, practical mm. advice. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's it's so impossible that calling it practical is maybe a overstatement. But this idea of like, you know, if you're five years old and you want to be top of the class, well, have mm. you tried reading all the children's books? And then when you run out of children's books to read all of the adult books? Oh, yeah. here's some advice. Start with Dickens. Start with, yeah. you know, and he, and he gives he gives specific reading lists oh, yeah. in this book, which yeah is another element that I thought was so cool. Like you don't see that. And he, he did this a little bit in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but you know, we start off with a with a straight bullet point list of children's books that include Rudyard Kipling and oh, that's all I remember. Just Rudyard Kipling, but <laughs> but 
to give specific thoughts about people like Tolkien, mm. C.S. Lewis. Matilda offers a book review of those saying that, you know, oh, they're wonderful. They're so brilliant, but they're just not funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think it's really interesting because he is writing it in the same decade as as these books are coming out. He is of their, I don't want to say he's of their cohort, but, you know, he's he's in the same stew as them. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about their books that have just come out in his own book. You don't see this. You don't see anyone publishing a book today where they where they give a slightly negative review of another <laughs> book that was published three years before or something like that. It's incredible. Yeah, I think that's nice. That that's the specific critique, too, because his books are so funny. And I think he knows that lots of the children's authors, when we go and we read Rudyard Kipling, those books aren't very funny. You know, he's one of the most renowned children's authors before this time. Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, not funny. It's an adventure, but it doesn't make you laugh. Roald Dahl makes you laugh every page. And I think that's the one thing that he would say, I love these authors, but they are not writing for children in the style. Well, I just, I think he would even argue that they're not writing for children. I want to talk about how Roald Dahl makes us laugh because mm-hmm. I think so much of it just has to do with the the language that he uses to, I mean, yeah, he comes up with really funny situations, but he insults people with such a beautiful vocabulary, a disgusting vocabulary, <laughs> calling people blisters, calling them little warts. Uh, he uses alliteration mm-hmm. to come up with these horrible, mean names for people. And it's 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 so funny. It, it's not <laughs> laugh out loud funny. It's amusing is what it is. Mm. It's ticklish. I like the the zany situations that are happening too, even though they are kind of violent. You mentioned them already. They're scary, but they're also kind of funny. When Trunchbull picks up the girl by the pigtails, throws her out, it's scary, but it's also makes you laugh a little bit. When they prank Trunchbull, that's hilarious. They put a salamander in her glass. She freaks out. When Matilda pranks her with the parrot and pranks her parents with the parrot so that they believe they're seeing ghosts. And you get to see these adults run off as idiots because they've been tricked by a four-year-old girl who put a parrot in their chimney. That's very funny. That's very exciting to see. Oh, this evil teacher got what she deserved, and it was the kids that outsmarted her. So one thing I know about Roald Dahl's life is that he himself loves pranks. And I think it's... So I, I had just read through his his book, Boy, which is kind of an autobiography of his childhood. And one of the things I noticed in it was that he's always pranking people. Maybe we can read it together and get more in detail about young Roald's pranks, but you know, one of them involves putting a dead mouse in a in a jar of candy at the candy right. shop. The great mouse. And, yeah, yeah. So plot. The yeah, the great mouse plot. <laughs> so so I think that he's definitely a pranker type. You know, he, some people are pranker types, and I think Dahl is a is a prankster. He's a trickster, and we love him for it. I do think that we don't love pranksters as much as we used to. Yeah. I think YouTube kind of ruined pranksters, but, but Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. But I blame the downfall of the trickster <laughs> on Ashton Kutcher, <laughs> but you know, it's great. It's fun. It's good fun. Hmm. I want to talk about the one prank though. Okay. The one prank for good that she does, <laughs> which is hmm. so miss honey, has been cheated out of her 
inheritance, her house, she's living in a shack on the outside of town, and it's all Trunchbull's fault. So Matilda, what she does is she uses her telekinetic powers to write on the on the wall, you know, I know what you did, Trunchbull. You know, I know what you did. So she's <laughs> she's impersonating the ghost of Mr. Honey and, you know, basically tells Trunchbull she's got to get out of town or else he's going to get her. But mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how the telekinetic aspect of this book is played so straight. Like, it's not even a question. It, it's We have a supernatural element at play here. And I think that it's interesting reading it as an adult because I don't know if this is a cultural shift or this is just getting older, but I feel like when I was a kid, it was certainly an open question of like, you know, is telekinesis possible? Maybe. God, golly, maybe, <laughs> you know? And I feel like something happened in the last 15, 20 years where telekinesis kind of went off the table. Mm. I don't know if that's personal. I don't know if that's cultural, but I you don't see people trying to bend spoons anymore. <laughs> when we read Harry Potter, I want to see, look, look, come back to that. I remember that also being a big thing, but I don't hear anyone talk about it now. As a teacher now, you know, of sixth and fifth graders, no one ever talks about telekinesis. And I wonder if it's because seeing so many people using wands and magic, now we just associate that with being a wizard and using that kind of thing. So you wouldn't talk yeah. about telekinesis anymore. You talk about having surprise wizard powers. Sure. Well, also with wizardry, you have a mm-hmm. wand, right? So those yeah. those powers are channeled through this tool, which makes things happen. And Rowling tells you that, you know, this stuff isn't possible, or at least it goes horribly haywire without <laughs> you know, a wand. A proper so, wand. you know, me being a gullible child, I would just presume that if I don't have a wand, I'm not going to be able to move stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. But I think in, in a Matilda magical universe, the, mm. and is this even magic? It seems more paranormal, supernatural. Paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Matilda, the, the, M, the MPU, the Matilda paranormal universe, it's, it's something innate to the child. It's almost like Carrie. Now that I think about it, Stephen yeah. King's Carrie Except instead of creating like a, you know, insane hellmouth. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah hellmouth. We create a, you know, paranormal incident for good. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I tried to move things with my mind when I was a kid. Did you? <laughs> did it work? Oh, yeah. And then I would bend the spoon and say, look, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a great TikTok the other day, actually. So, so I guess bending spoons hasn't gone totally out of style. But the TikTok was basically like, oh yeah, we went to this retreat to learn how to bend spoons. And, you know, she's holding it, she's holding it. And then her hand moves and covers, you know, (laughs) goes in between the camera and the spoon. And then the frame visibly cuts. (laughs) And then the next frame is her holding the spoon and being like, I did it. I bent it. And I'm just like, are are we still not, not only are we like still doing this, but we're like actively tricking like it's one thing to be like oh i i don't know how it happened like i guess i automatically move my hand and bent the spoon manually it's another to get on like adobe premiere pro and be like okay <laughs> i'm going to cut out the point where i bent the spoon with my hand <laughs> anyways anyways all i'm saying is there's no magic in that and i i like the magic i like the magic here the magic i want to ask you you brought up a scene that i think is very important and different in this book and i don't know If we've seen it before, and I have a feeling we might not see it that often, Matilda helps an adult. And there's the chapter, Miss Honey's Cottage. 
it's the adult confessing to the child about her own problems. You know, it's Matilda and it's a book about Matilda's problems as a young kid. Her parents are terrible. But then the book turns and it becomes Honey talking about her childhood problems as if Matilda were a counselor. And then Matilda is the one who uses her telekinetic powers, who uses her cleverness to use a parrot and hide it so it will use ventriloquism. So she uses the parrot to use ventriloquism. And then she tricks Trunchbull and solves all of these problems, getting Miss Honey her house back, getting her all of the money in the bank account back, and getting her her life back. Now Trunchbull, who's the principal of the school, leaves the school and Miss Honey gets to teach like she wants. She solves everything for Miss Honey. Also, Miss Honey, who wants a child, does not have one. Matilda's parents abandon Matilda and Matilda gets adopted by Miss Honey. What did you think about this, this turn? I wasn't expecting that, where Matilda now becomes kind of a psychologist or a counselor to this adult. That's a really good observation. I don't, I agree. I don't think we've seen this before in children's books. Especially like we, I'm sure we could point to any number of examples of children saving the day. Maybe Rudyard Kipling's Kim is a good example of Mm -hmm. that, where the protagonist is a child and they stop a war, you know, between I believe Russia and India or, you know, something, something along those lines through their expert spycraft, maybe Animorphs or (laughs) straight to, (laughs) you know, the boxcar kids, (laughs) you know, something like that. You, You could pull those out a dime a dozen, but becoming the emotional confidant of the adult is really interesting. And I think Mm -hmm. of like maybe the model of Dumbledore to Harry Potter. Dumbledore Mm -hmm. will disclose things to Harry Potter, but Dumbledore won't Mm -hmm. give Harry Potter his deep childhood trauma or the entire plan and then say, here, Harry, now you solve this. You know what I mean? Like all the other books, the adults retain a sense of power and control and that's not what we get here. So that's that's a great observation. I'm going to keep looking out for that in children's books. You know what? I think last time you mentioned Harry Potter being in conversation with Roald Dahl books, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we have fantastical chocolates, fantastical candies. They make us think of the chocolate frog and Bertie's every flavor, Bernie Bot's every flavored beans. I think also this idea of the adult unloading their problems onto the child and the child having to solve it does occur. Dumbledore doesn't put that on Harry, but he shares with him. Snape literally does that with his memories. He has to give Harry these memories, these painful memories for Snape as a kid growing up, same age, so that Harry can know the situation, know about the situation. But Harry is also the chosen one. So ultimately, he does have to solve everything for everyone. So I think that that's kind of similar to what's going on here for Matilda. He he does have to solve everything for everyone, but the adults don't sit on their hands waiting <laughs> for Harry to solve it for them. You know what I mean? Like Except for adult- Slughorn. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so if we want to talk about how this book is in conversation with later books hmm. in you know the history of children's literature, I do think that the entire Harry Potter and the Dursleys dynamic could not have been written without Matilda. Wow, very good point. I think that that was just like a one-to-one, like, what is the dynamic here? We got, is his name Dudley? Dudley, Dudley Dursley. Yeah, yeah, Dudley Dursley, Vernon Dursley, you know, all those people are, it's the same dynamic of Matilda's family, where you have just a bunch of slugs living in a suburban roof and one brilliant child. 
who yeah. is unappreciated and not allowed to bloom in the way that yeah. you know their brilliant flowers of minds you know ought to bloom and going away in this case to school or to the library or to hogwarts means a kind of new environment in which they can fully express themselves in the way that they were meant to and also taking on new parents or people who stand in for the parents hmm. for you know a hairy type that would be you know initially like initially like a hagrid but you know he takes mm-hmm. on other adult role models as we go along in this one it's clearly miss honey to the point of where he Matilda is adopted by miss honey at the end you know putting the legal stamp upon that already established emotional relationship two images i want to leave with that support that are when mr Wormwood tears up Matilda's book. Her only joy is reading books. Her life sucks. And all she likes to do is read books. She finally finds the thing. He tears it up. Harry Potter lives under the stairs and his life is terrible. He just hears them going down the stairs all the time. He lives in a little tiny closet. Finally, the letter from Hogwarts comes. Vernon takes it and he tears it up. Harry doesn't get to go. It's the only chance he can get out of this terrible life. And earlier we said the little brother of Matilda redeems himself. He waves and says goodbye. When Harry leaves and he tells the Dursleys goodbye. I'm leaving. I'll probably never see you again. Petunia and Vernon don't care at all. The only one who wants a hug and wants to say goodbye is Dudley. And Harry's shocked by that. So I think there is a lot going on between Roald Dahl and Rowling. I think you're right. Yeah. I do think that there is, you know, something as an adult that I look on this book, like as a kid, I was like, oh, Matilda, the pranks, all the stuff she does. Matilda really got her comeuppance. But actually... As an adult, I feel like Matilda is not the polar opposite of her parents, but actually a product of them. So the 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 tearing up, the abuse, the emotional bullying that she gets growing up, I think that plays into her pranks. And I think that she might actually be a little mean. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you calling beloved Matilda a villain, Zach? Mean Matilda. Mean Matilda. I'm going to argue against you. You're going to argue? Okay, all right. Well, so I am arguing that Miss Matilda is quite mean, actually. And Mm. I think that when I was a kid, pranks were all in good fun. You know, you're supposed to have a good sense of humor about pranks, I think. But now I think where we are as a culture, I think that Pranks are people are starting to have a kind of side eye view of pranks. The mm. last prank I remember seeing on TikTok was a guy walking up to a military man, a, a guy in you know full camo gear with a gun on him, you know, mm. uh, taking the cell phone from his hands, throwing it on the ground, and stomping it till it broke, and then you know he was arrested immediately but he kept being like guys it's a prank it's a prank i got you a new iphone 14 right here see you're on camera and like in (laughs) in in what world is destroying someone's cell phone to then give them a you know immediately give them a new out of the box cell phone that that's not a (laughs) prank that's just like that's just being mean for attention and you know i just want to to wrap to bring all that back i feel like a lot of Matilda's pranks are quite mean. When she super glues the hat to her dad's head and it rips out the hair from his scalp, that's mean. 
when she bleaches his hair with peroxide and says like, oh, is something wrong, daddy? You know, <laughs> that's that's a little mean, I got to say, mm. you know, because it caused physical harm. Yeah, it's just hair, though. It would grow back. I mean, Trunchbull causes real physical harm because she deforms a boy's ears. <laughs> she pulls him so hard. And Miss Honey says, his ears might not go back. She says, yes, I know. I don't care. So she causes permanent harm. I think there's a difference between the, the pranks going on and then what Matilda is doing. There's no relationship between the people doing the prank. There's no relationship between the prankster and the person pranked. When we <laughs> when we had punked and Ashton Kutcher would do it, it's funny, I think, if he knows the person and it's a person you have a relationship with. If it's someone you don't know, it's just, ooh, shocking. Ooh, I guess this is funny because it's TV, but I don't feel comfortable. The Office was one of the you know most popular TV shows on television for the for a while and the most beloved character well at least the character lots of people loved was jim and i think the episode that we really started to like him is when he pranks dwight by putting his stapler in green jello <laughs> you know, so here i am me. laughing <laughs> <laughs> so i think pranks used to be it's not that long ago that we lost pranks there were still some fun pranks and that one's funny because dwight's not really getting hurt his feelings are a little bit hurt. Dwight deserves it. But here with her father, her father is a crook who robs people for their money, sells them cars that are going to break down. All he does is bad things. And what she decides, because she's so beastly, too, so terrible to her, she says, quote, every time that her father or mother was beastly to her, she would get her own way back in some way or another. A small victory or two would help her tolerate their idiocies and would stop her from going crazy. So it's revenge. Yeah. Now, is revenge, <laughs> or should yeah. we like revenge? We're, we always talk about that we should not do revenge. However, this is a four-year-old girl who is not allowed to bloom because of her terrible parents. I feel like those mean pranks are great. She's not mean to any of her classmates, just her parents and Miss Trunchbull, who definitely deserve it. Well, I think that there's a spectrum of what revenge might be considered morally good and mm. morally less good. Keep in mind the the breakdown of the word revenge is re again and venge short for vengeance <laughs> mm. so it's like if if the dad is cheating people i feel like the appropriate response isn't to super glue his hat to his head <laughs> you know maybe the appropriate like oh what a prank kind of thing to do is restorative in the sense of like oh we oh we punked him we we recorded him <laughs> saying exactly what he does and mm -hmm. now we send copies of that to the people he sells cars to or the local newspaper or something. And I think it's interesting how the character arc of Matilda is starting off with these very vengeful mm -hmm. pranks. But ultimately, she uses her her power of, of prank, her P.O.P., to do something restorative, hmm. to write a cosmic injustice that happened to miss honey now i'm starting to realize that the miss honey aspect where she is the counselor to miss honey is not just a strange thing where the child becomes the hero for the adult it's also necessary for matilda to have that turning point you're right maybe if she kept going in that direction and her pranks got progressively worse maybe she ended up killing one of her parents or something but if they got more violent and more vengeful that would not be character growth so that she sees that she can use her powers for something restorative 
especially when she has telekinetic powers. That could go horribly wrong if it was a vengeful prank. Now that she can use them, fix Miss Honey's life, her powers go away after that. So she needs this, this opportunity for growth to change her ways. And then once she's able to change her ways, her special power goes away. So she's become, she got over that, that, that inheritance from her parents. Her parents are evil. She inherited some of that evil. Now that evil is gone. Also, it's, it, it helps her recognize that she's not the only one whose life is kind of personal injustice mm. and that she is in a position to help other people. You know, she may not be able to 100% help herself, but she can help Miss Honey. And that's, you know, that's a turning point. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I forgot to actually mention this, but I'm going to take this opportunity now. In his author bio in this book, it talks about his jobs. And the, the job that he puts number one is Shell Oil Company representative in East Africa. Wow. Whoa. Talk about Didn't it. Didn't know that. Yeah. That, like... You lead with that? Yeah. <laughs> That's the top of your resume? <laughs> oh my god, Mr. Dull. Mr. Dull. <laughs> All right, until next time, Bob. Talk, Talk to, to you later, later Bob. <laughs> Talk to you later, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> that post. <laughs>